Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I have a an incredibly intelligent special guest today uh but before we get to that person i think i should probably talk to john kelly sorry john that wasn't an introduction for nick, you you're a funny guy nick Bilton. i'm you're, a funny guy no i have a um, funny guy uh, you're a funny guy you're, 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 you're a little british floridian twerp uh, <laughs> So before we get to my guest, uh, this guy um, who has just written a book on the future of AI and how we're all going to lose our jobs and how one of the scariest parts is about how uh, people that are working on uh, killer robots that will go on the battlefield and probably come off the battlefield and come knock on your front door and kill you. Um, we, I want to start to John very briefly about what's going on in Trump land. We're going to talk about the markets, Facebook. Um, so no better, no, no away, better on, on, on this side of the future. I hate to say it. Yeah. So real quick, I don't want to do too much Trump cause I'm a little trumped out, uh, as I think everyone is. Um, but I was really fascinated by the Michael Flynn memo this week from, uh, our special friends on the general council that right, are special council. Yeah. Special counsel, general, who cares? Um, what, give us a rundown of what's going on, what you're hearing inside the Vanity Fair newsroom. Um, and what we can expect, what this all means. Well, I think a lot of people this week, I guess on Tuesday night, sort of had their eyebrows raised when they got their, either saw on Twitter or got an RSS alert that um, the special counsel's office had had written a uh, a memo recommending no jail time for for uh, for Mike Flynn. Part of why people were so shocked by this was that. Um, the you know Cohen had just retestified uh, that that he lied before, but he wasn't lying now, and and questions were swirling regarding whether or not he was going to serve an extended sentence. Um, uh, I've asked Emily Fox a million times how many uh, years she thinks he'll go to jail for, and it, it, it uh, nobody knows. But that was a question very much in the air. So when the Mueller memo about Flynn came out, it it, it not only tapped into a sort of public curiosity. But it was just gobsmacking that they were recommending no jail time. The assumption being he's cooperated in 19 interviews. I mean, they outlined 19 interviews that he has given significant um, uh, uh, evidentiary details. I can't remember the exact phrase, but um, it, it was one of those sort of back of the hand, almost Peter the Rabbit, like Englishisms, a, a, a sort of uh, where you see occasionally um, – 
how lawyers can be fine writers. Um, uh, they were. Is this? Is this? Wait. So is this meant to scare Trump to say, "Hey, we know what we." Well, you I, don't, know, I don't think it's meant to know. scare anyone. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think this was meant to scare anyone. I, I think this was literally like the, the, the other end of a deal. Like Flynn cooperated immediately. He clearly cooperated extensively, and Mueller is living up to his end of the bargain by saying, "For all of this, he's not. He, he should not go to jail." Um, uh, but I, I don't. I don't think it's a perjury trap. I, I don't think that this is the same. Uh, sort of maneuver that that may have been an intentional move last week, where where Mueller um, asked, uh, you know, made clear that he knew the truth after asking Trump to submit uh, a written memo uh, answers to his questions. But if if okay, so if, but if you put if if someone put out a, a report saying that um, John Kelly uh, spoke extensively about about a case involving Nick Bilton. I'd be like, oh shit! I'm yeah, well, these in these sentencing memos are due. I mean, I, I presume Michael Cohen gets one too. Um, I don't think like like Trump's pretty fucked. I I don't think that that's a um, uh, you know a, a controversial statement. You know, he, by the standards of any other previous president, he would have been in in volcanic uh, ash right now. Whether he can survive this, <coughs> excuse me, is unclear. But you know, Mueller's just doing his job and, and the timing of it is such that, you know, we, we are winding down this investigation and it looks from what Cohen has said and from what Flynn has said that that they're keying in on a couple of really, really crucial circumstances and meetings that involve potentially, or it seems like, members of the president's family. And I think that's what is so alarming uh, to the West Wing. I mean, Gabe reported some of this this week that, uh, you know, it's not just the, the June 2016 meeting with Vesson Litskaya, but also this back channel to Kislyak in, in December of 2016, but right after he won. These are meetings and conversations that involve not just Don Jr., who's, who seems like, you know, someone who, 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 who seems like a wart that the president is ready to lance off if he needs to, but also Jared Kushner, which is a more complicated thing because it, it doesn't seem like Ivanka uh, would tolerate um, uh, him doing that. And because the case is also being tried in New York, Trump's pardon powers are going to be limited. So I, I think Mueller is just expressing the truth, which is, in many ways, he could have the president boxed in. Okay, well, enough Trump. I think enough the, enough I Trump. It, yeah, it, five it's minutes not, of Trump was enough just, Trump. Not, not to belabor, but um, I can't imagine any previous president uh, being able to withstand anything uh, of, of this magnitude. That said... Absent a, a, a real smoking gun, absent uh, massive money laundering um, in Trump Soho or, or the Scottish golf course, it, it's still unclear whether or not these suggestive details reach the sort of liberal erogenous fantasies of impeachment um, that, that have been fomenting for months. Like, like you know, what people want is, is so extensive that um, it's, it's hard to know if the wish fulfillment is going to come true. Yeah, I completely agree, one thousand percent. All right, let's uh, let's talk Facebook. Yeah, for yeah. Two so minutes. let me ask you. So what? So this, um, uh, you know, it's obviously it, bad news, bad news, bad news. But all this stuff that's going on in Britain with these released statements, are are, are you surprised that Facebook like that they fuck over their enemies and 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 help their partners and, and that their executives are are a bunch of uh, callous jerks who who uh, run around trying to stab their enemies in the front and the back. Well, it's not just their enemies, but their their users too. I think that the thing that's been so revealing for me is is not that there's two things here. One is one thing I've heard from from Facebook employees, both current and former, uh, is that 
they think that the media is being unfair and that they're attacking them and coming after them. Um, and uh, and what these released emails show and what the media shows and so on and the response and the, the perception by Facebook employees is that the reason that everyone is going after Facebook as aggressively as they are is because Facebook has gone around for the better part of 12 years or so saying that they're just here to make the world a better place. You know, Mark Zuckerberg right. has repeatedly said, we're just here to connect people. And, and and what it turns out is that's total bullshit. What they are just there to do is make as much fucking money as humanly possible. Right. Um, and, you know, you can see in these emails where there's employees saying, you know, the growth team says that we should put this out, even though it could be if anyone ever figures out what we're doing, could be a PR disaster. But we, it, there's still the growth upside for this is just it far outweighs that. And it, it's the fact that they're completely aware of how bad the things that they're doing are it just is it's an example it exemplifies just what they know is going on and what the, and, and what the goal is and what to bring this back around to the beginning of when i said you know that they they don't understand why people are so mad at them and the media keeps coming after them if this were was wall street we it would just be it would be like Tuesday. It it wouldn't matter. It we it would be covered in like the back pages of the business section of the Times if if at all. And the reason that everyone is so pissed is because for years we've all been told, oh, we're just trying to make the world a better place and connect people. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just been one big giant yeah. But money I mean, like, to be fair, scam. I, I feel like Goldman Sachs and, and other big banks who suffered reputational damage, you know. Uh, in, in 2008 uh, and, and thereabouts um, for, for betting against the American economy, among other things, they they also tried to reimagine themselves as, as supporters of small business and, um, and 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 links in a global economy. But your point, you know, that, that Facebook is, is um, it's out there to make money. That's true. I think. But what's really troubling is that it's it's business is is selling your identity. And that's something yes. that um, at first, like. I mean, I, I was in big newsrooms when when Facebook was going public, and a lot of like a, a lot of Boomer generation people were appalled by this. And I, my feeling, at least, was that millennials and people our age and, and and younger didn't care that they didn't care that they were being that their that their cookies were being chopped up and packaged in, in in a way. Oh no, I disagree. I disagree. I totally disagree. The reason that they they did they cared the the thing that's different is that we grew up in a, you and me as old men, mm-hmm. grew up in a world where everything was always private. And along came Facebook, and along came Twitter, and all these things. And we had the option to live publicly. The millennials grew up in when Facebook and those things were already around. And so for them, they have always grown up in public. So they are fully aware of the, th- the fact that they what they do is being chopped up and used in the way they're doing it. And, and they are so much more adept Yes, and I think this true. is why Snapchat was so successful, uh, even though it's now for a time six dollars yes. a share. Right. Yeah, but it was because it offered this idea that oh, I don't my things get deleted. There's no my parents can't see this. The company's not going to spy on me in the same way that Facebook will. Like, um, and I think that that what's it's the thing that's so frustrating to me is Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I've been covering him for 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 fifteen years. Like, he I have never. There's not a human being on earth who I think has apologized more and then continues to do the exact same right. thing over and over again. Um, and and you see this what it, you just you get to see what's happening inside and outside at the same time. And I think you know 
the the Facebook employees that are like, wait, this isn't fair. Like, give me a fucking break. But the problem, like, though, what Nick, you've it, done for fifteen years isn't fair. Right, but the, but the 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 trick, of course, that that or the card that Zuckerberg has up his sleeve is that Wall, you know, Wall Street loves him. Even even uh, uh, in the wake of all the the definers news. Um, there's no way that that major investors are going to agitate for a leadership change, given how steady the Zuckerberg, oh, I don't think, yeah, Sheryl I don't think that. leadership team has been. It, it, this is this is you know they don't confuse morality with uh, with finance. No, I completely agree. There's no, you know, the stocks the stocks dropped forty points in the past year. The Kelly um, built-in Facebook leadership team. What do you think about that? Should they? Uh, <laughs> I don't look. I don't Kelly, think that- you, you, you get top billing. You're you're you're. Uh, I'm more techie. Yeah, I can't even set up a nest. Look, I don't think that um, it's actually quite complicated to set up a nest, but um, I don't think that that there's going to be leadership change. I think everyone thinking that you know the the Mark or Cheryl or you know anyone Shrep or any of these people that that are there in the executive level positions are going to step down over this is is just living on a pipe dream. Like um, these are people that that have been through this before. Um, this one's just is a little longer than last time. And so, right. you know, all I, all I can say is that I do believe that the people are using the product less and data shows that and anecdotes show that. And yeah, um, but they have and, so much money I, that they're positioned to, to play for the future you know, what, what's happening Instagram or our hot yeah. products. And, and um, if they can, if they can nail something in the AR space, which presumably they will be able to do, um, uh, don't cry for me, Facebook. Anyway, more about uh, the market. Last Last question, yeah. Uh, yeah, on the on the market. So um, before we get to the killer robots that will come and destroy us all and save us from this, this I love this it. Terrible I love it. Social media world. Um, <laughs> who? Uh, so the markets fell what eighteen hundred points in the last two days alone. Yeah. It's we're we're, we're, we're now taking this down towards to, the end of market hours, but that sounds about right. Um, wh- what's going What's going on here? I mean, uh, is this? Is this just like Trump being Trump and and overplaying his hands and um, and the the response to the China trade deals and you know everything that's going on globally or I mean is there something you know everyone thought that the um, that the G twenty uh, detente um, uh, you know uh, would with China would would somehow rally the markets. Um, uh, and it, it seemed that there was, you know, the, 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 I think there was huge on Sunday night, a, a, a huge rally. Um, but this is all about the, the yield on 10-year Treasury notes, you know, dropping to the lowest rate since August. And um, it, it's it's complicated to me. I think everyone that, that, that I talk to who, who's, who's smart in this world um, says or has been saying for months, Bill Cohen's been saying this for months, Stock market was like twenty six thousand. You know, like how much higher is it going to get? And there's such a, a, a baked in fear of a recession that that um, that wild swings like this totally, totally um, uh, get us all agitated because it because it, it, it touches that nerve. Um, but um, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it's it's fang world, right? I mean, I feel like we're just. Um, uh, this is the, the the market realizing that if you're not Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, or Google, you're fucked, man. And um, yep, and that's terrifying. I mean, that's because uh, I think that a lot a lot a lot of people think that's true. Well, you know, it's even more terrifying: artificial intelligent robots taking over the world, destroying society, and putting us all out of jobs. Yes, you and me, John, 
will be out of a job because there will be an artificial intelligent algorithm soon that will be able to write stories and edit them better than you and I can. Sorry, yeah. buddy. No, I'm sure. I'm so scared about this, I can't even begin to tell you. Not not just the way it impacts our profession, but um, uh, this. Uh, we had coffee earlier this week, and I think that um, we, in our late 30s and early 40s, talk about uh, careers the way people used to in their late 60s or, or mid-60s, you know, that... Um, uh, you you feel like there's just something that's coming fast, and um, uh, so let's um, let's kill the robots. All right, so uh, I'd like to uh, I'll just give you a little brief primer on who's coming on the show. This guy's name is Martin Ford. Um, he's uh, he's been covering AI and inequality due to technology. Um, all these things. He's been researching it for for many many years. He's written a bunch of books on this topic. He has a new book out called Architects of Intelligence: The Truth About AI from the People Building It. He sits down with twenty of the top artificial intelligence people, the people that are making all this stuff, um, and interviews them about what could go wrong, what could go right, what we should be worried about the most. Um, I read the book. It's pretty fascinating just to, to hear these brilliant minds talk about it. And so I'm excited to have him on the show to hear what he has to say. I'm terrified. Be terrified, John. Martin, welcome to uh, Inside the Hive. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you are essentially an artificial intelligent expert, uh, and I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to begin, but why don't we begin by you explaining how you came across the idea to write a book about all of the people that are working on AI today? Well, this is actually my third book. Um, I became interested uh, more than a decade ago, especially in the topic of the potential impact of AI and robotics on the job market and the economy. And I wrote uh, my first book in 2009, and then that led to uh, my second book, Rise of the Robots, in 2015, which really focused on the potential for you know, disruption to the job market. Um, and then since then, I've, I've really sort of shifted my whole career to become kind of a futurist focused on um, the potential implications of AI and, and robotics going forward. And my latest book is an attempt to really get inside the minds of the smartest people working in AI, the, the research scientists and the entrepreneurs that are really making this happen, the people that are doing the research that underlies all of this, and really try to understand what they think about these issues, because there is a tremendous amount of hype and speculation out there. Uh, you know, you hear some crazy things about robots taking over and all the rest of it. So I you really might, you might have heard some of those. You might have heard some of those crazy things from me. So yeah, that's possible. <laughs> um, okay, so r- before before we get into some of the things that you discovered and in, in your reporting for the book and, and whatnot, can you tell me? Do you are you on the side of the fence where you believe that we should be worried about AI and robots taking over the world and you know, the end of humanity, or are you on the other side where you think, oh, well, this is just another technology like a computer or a hammer or something like that? Right. I, I'm kind of in the middle on, on that particular question of the existential threat, the idea that machines could, you know, take over and genuinely threaten us. I think that that's a legitimate concern someday, but I think it lies very far in the future. And there are a lot of other issues that are much more immediate. And again, the, the one that I focused on the, mo- the most is the potential impact on the job market. But 
there are other things to worry about in the next 10 years or even starting right now. Um, the idea that machines could be you know, a genuine threat to us, I think, is much further out. So it's okay that some people think about that, but uh, you know, we don't want a huge government investment in that particular question at this point, I wouldn't think. Okay, so um, I'm going to get to that point because that's the that's the fascinating point for me. But one question I have before we get there is, you talk about the job market, and one thing that happened recently uh, with me was I um, I was interviewing Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, for a, for a Vanity Fair story, and he was show about a year ago, and he showed me. We talked about the idea that eventually computers could take over. Actors like the in the same way that we have CGI uh, characters in like Monsters Inc. and Toy Story and things like that. That eventually you would get to a point where that that could happen in Hollywood. And uh, and then I interviewed him again this year for another story, and he showed me an example of um, of the Lion King, the new uh, CGI version of it that they're doing. And I actually didn't realize until kind of halfway through. Uh, watching this this preview for this thing, that these were not real animals. And what was so striking to me was, A, how quickly that happened. It was just a one-year period, and, and uh, uh, Bob Iker told me it would probably be 15 to 20 years before they'd be able to get this technology to where it is today. Um, but so the speed with which it happened, but also that you just we don't think about all of these industries that are going to be turned upside down by the, the development of artificial intelligence and more machine learning and so on. So, so the question for you is, who is not? At, is there anyone that's really not at risk, or is everyone at risk of being overtaken by a computer at some point? At some point, everyone is. I mean, the the point I make again and again, and I think many other people buy into this, is that artificial intelligence is going to be like a utility. It's going to be like electricity. It's going to basically invade everything. So there isn't any particular sector of the economy or the job market or, or, or even society or culture that, that isn't ultimately going to be dramatically impacted by this. Um, for the foreseeable future, I mean, if you're thinking specifically in terms of jobs, I think if you're doing something really creative or you're doing something that really involves building sophisticated relationships with people on a very human level, things like empathy, these are going to be relatively safe for the foreseeable future. I mean, these are the areas that you kind of want to be in if, if you don't want to lose your job to a computer. But if you're doing something that is fundamentally routine and predictable, if you are sitting in front of a computer cranking out the same report again and again or doing some kind of blue-collar work that's essentially predictable and, and repetitive, that, you know, that kind of stuff is definitely going to be threatened, I think, within the next five to ten years, certainly. Do you Is there, is there a, a world in which... You know, there's always the arguments that um, that technology, AI, machine learning, all these things become. This is the thing I don't know. I don't understand the answer to is there are people who build these things who defend them and say, oh well, you know, in the same way that computers help us type faster or spell check our words and things like that, they haven't replaced us. Um, the you know, artificial intelligence, things like that, will do the same thing. They'll just become tools, but. That's not completely true. If an actor is no longer acting because a CGI version of them is doing it, they're not tools that that actor is using. And so do you think that, you know, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it is, the job market just is upended by AI? Or is it that parts of it are and parts of it are just made more efficient? Well, 
I think personally that it will be upended significantly um, at some point. It might take a little longer than that. Maybe it's 15 years. Uh, but I think you're getting at the, the central sort of debate, which is, is artificial intelligence and robotics, is it going to replace us or is it going to augment us and make us more powerful? And I think that the answer is that both of those things are going to be true, but it may not be true equally for everyone. It depends on, on your capabilities, your skills, um, where you fit in the economy. Um, if you are highly educated, if you are you know, someone that can really be in a position to use these tools to leverage your creativity, if you're a, a research scientist, for example, you know, these are going to be tools that are going to be very powerful. But if you're, obviously if you're a driver and self-driving cars come along, then it's a lot harder to see how you're, you're going to continue to play a role, right? So I think both replacement and augmentation or enhancement of, of workers is going to happen. But I think it's probably inevitable that over time the number of workers that, that are really in a position to be enhanced by this technology, to, to use it to, to, to leverage their capabilities, is going to sort of shrink. And what that means, of course, is more inequality. Okay, so getting to the content of this book, you kind of set out to understand the people that are building artificial intelligence, um, what, where we are, you know, what the future looks like if lunatics like me are just kind of being a little bit hyperbolic when we get scared of robots roaming the earth and killing small children um, over, you know, a power cord or something like that. Did you um, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you learned? And actually, maybe before we get there, one of the things I found really interesting about your book was that there are all these different types of AI that, that we don't really think about um, with, you know, different terms and and so on, and, and that there's this AI which could replace act, actual cognitive dissidents, could, could actually maybe one day have consciousness. There's AI that um, that is just specific AI that uh, works with computers. There's um, AGI. There's all these different things. Can you, can you kind of walk us through a little bit about what the variations of all this stuff are? Sure. Um, so the holy grail of artificial intelligence, the thing that everyone has always dreamed of right from the very beginning when Alan Turing wrote his first paper on this in 1950, is a thinking machine, something that would have human-level intellectual capability. That's what's called artificial general intelligence. And that is something that exists only in fiction, right? So you've seen it on Star Trek, you've seen it in 2001, A Space Odyssey, and The Matrix, and so forth. But we don't have anything close to that in reality. Uh, what we have Will now we have is something? That, I'm sorry, I mean, say is again? There a, is, is there a world that we do have something close to that? I mean, the, the idea that I could sit there and have a conversation with a robot that is no different to the conversation I'm having with you, is there a belief that we will ever get there? Yes, I, I mean, there, there definitely is a belief that we will get there, um, and that's one of the most interesting things that I delved into in the book is the question of how we get there, what the hurdles are in terms of the technology and in terms of the breakthroughs that would be required, and uh, you know how long it might take to get there. That was, one of the, I think, one of the most interesting part of the discussions. But you, you won't find anyone who believes that, that we're there now or that it's going to happen you know, next year or something. We're really not. Um, you can talk to Alexa, sure, but that, that just is not. I mean, that's not human-level intelligence, not by any stretch of the imagination. So, so we're really not there yet. Um, but there is a, a lot of debate over just how long it will take to get there. And I, as I report in the book, I asked Ray Kurzweil, for example, who is one of the most aggressive people 
um, when that might happen. And he believes it could happen in 2029, which is 11 years from now. Uh, and then I asked, I asked Rodney Brooks, who is uh, the founder of iRobot Corporation, um, and he believes it's like 180 years. So that, that's the range of opinion, and, and most of the others fall somewhere <laughs> in that range. Uh, so it's a wide open field in terms of, you know, we don't know, are we going to get to AGI literally in the next decade or so, or is it, is it 200 years in the future? The answer you know, could, could be either one of those. So the, the version of AI that we are going to have in the next um, five to ten years that you talk about, what is that? Is that, is, right. so, is that so kind what, of like a smarter Siri? Is it, you know, what is that? What we have now is, is essentially what you would call narrow artificial intelligence, meaning that it's specialized. It can do specific things. It can't think in a holistic way like a, like a person at all. But the things that it can do, the very specific things it can do at a, at a dramatically superhuman level, right? So it can do things um, that far exceed what a person can do. And you see examples of that with image recognition already. You have AI systems that can look at visual images um, and actually outperform people in terms of recognizing those. And those are used in self-driving cars, for example. They're, used, um, they're beginning to be used in, in medical applications for radiology. So you've got systems already that can look at a medical scan and determine whether or not there's cancer, there's evidence of cancer in that scan, and, and in some cases already outperform human doctors. So these are very, very powerful technologies. Those are the same technologies that underline what you see in, in Siri and in, in your personal assistants. And, and the name of this technology is deep learning. It always be, it's all being powered by neural networks that have many layers, so deep neural networks. And this is an idea that's been actually around since the 1950s, but really just within the last decade and really only within the last six years, you've just seen an explosion in this field. And this was driven by breakthroughs by some very smart people that I interviewed in the book, people like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio and uh, Jan LeCun are really famous people within the AI community for really unleashing this revolution in neural networks that we're seeing right now. And that's the thing that is really powering all of the dramatic stuff that we're seeing just in the last you know, five to ten years. The question is whether you can take this and power it forward and have that be the path to, to human-level AI. And there's a big debate over whether that's possible or whether we need to bring in other, other breakthroughs from other areas of artificial intelligence in order, in order for that to happen. You know, whether, whether so so what's the dream case? What's the dream case scenario for, for these, I mean, these examples of, you, you know, you talk about the things that we can do today where we can, you know, the computer can recognize someone's face and so on. W what are some examples of how our lives will be made better by the technologies that all these people are working on uh, in the next five to 10 years? Well, I think the most dramatic example is going to be leveraging these technologies in science and medicine. I mean, um, DeepMind, the company that made AlphaGo, just announced that its system, which, which was you know, developed to play games, is now being used to analyze proteins and figure out the way proteins are folded. So this is a huge breakthrough in terms of medical and scientific research. Uh, one of the people I talked to, Daphne Kohler at Stanford, is she has started a new startup company to use mi machine learning to discover new drugs. Um, because you know drugs are actually geometric, right? They're, they're, you know, molecules are actually have a geometric poly uh, property, so you can actually search for drugs um, using machine learning. And rather than having someone in a, in a laboratory, you know, mixing things in test tubes, 
you can do this in a much more systematic way. So we're going to see a huge impact on um, science and technology breakthroughs in lots of other areas from this technology. Um, and of course, beyond that, it's going to make things a lot more efficient. It's going to make products and services cheaper. Uh, deep learning is going to be used in robots to make those robots more dexterous, more capable. That's happening already. Uh, it's, going to, it's one of the main technologies that will eventually enable self-driving cars, although I think that that may take a bit longer than you know, some people are projecting because it is a very, very hard problem. Uh, and of course, it's going to make personal assistance and so forth much better. So Siri and, and Alexa, they're going to get a lot better. I mean, I, it may take a long time before they get to human-level AI, but certainly in terms of their routine capabilities, they're going to get a lot better. So we're going to see dramatic progress in a lot of these areas. But the point I keep making is that there are going to be two sides to this. There's a lot of positive stuff that's going to be very good, and there's also going to be this impact on the job market and the impact potentially on inequality. And so it's going to be really important that we figure out a way to adapt to that to, so that we can leverage this progress on behalf of everyone and make sure that we don't have huge numbers of people that sort of fall behind or impacted ne negatively. So one of the – you just mentioned before uh, robots, and I know in the book you kind of you, – you ask a few people about Boston Dynamics, which is the robot company that um, Google had acquired, and they make those – robot dogs that are terrifying looking that, you know, look like they could hunt you down and kill you in your sleep without you even waking up. Um, when do we start to see those kinds of robots in the real world? Uh, whether it's, you know, picking up trash cans or security guards in office buildings or walking your dog or whatever it is that they're going to do. Like, when do we actually start to see the future that we've all kind of imagined in our head after reading sci-fi books and watching movies and so on, um, when does that become reality? Right. And that's a question that I asked a lot of the people I talked to, and, and it, it's a challenge. I think it's, you know, in terms of really seeing robots integrated into our environment and doing useful things, that's pretty far out. It, it, it is a major challenge to basically create dexterity in a robot, um, and, and it it's expensive, it's challenging. Um, the sensors, the equipment that robots need to use in order to understand where they are in the world are, are very expensive right now. Um, building a robot that has the kind of dexterity to do useful things, I mean, kind of the cliche is, is that people will imagine, I'd like to have a robot that can go, go to the refrigerator and get me a beer, right? And yet we're far away from that um, in many ways. And, it, and, you know, so I don't think we're going to see that kind of thing anytime soon, but we will see specialized robots. We already see experiments with delivery robots, right, the kind of slow-moving robots that can maybe deliver things to your house. Um, that's happening. There are already delivery robots in, in hospitals. Um, there are specialized robots, of course, like the Roomba that, that vacuums floors and things like that. Um, one of the biggest potential areas, I think, is in elder care, you know, robots that can help assist the elderly. Um, and you're going to see some of that, but again, they're going to be specialized, you know, robots that do particular things. Building a robot that could really look after an older person and have the dexterity and the capability and the flexibility to do that is still totally science fiction. So um, tangible robots are going to take a bit longer, I would say. And some of the earlier advances that we're going to see are going to be just software, just applications of artificial intelligence in white-collar type work or or things like 
like Alexa, where you're communicating with the device, but it's not moving around and doing physical things. So the so the immediate future is a little bit more like her, uh, the movie her, and a little less like iRobot for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, the iRobot scenario is definitely far out. Uh, I mean, there yeah. are huge problems there, you know, in terms of solving those. So one of the things that you do to ask a lot of people about, and I'm really curious, and which is not so far out. In fact, it could probably be done in some respects in the very near future, if not today, is robots being used um, to kill. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of um, research being done um, in, uh, in the Army um, and with DARPA, all these other places where... Um, you know, people are building robots that could be used on the battlefield, um, and not just on the battlefield, but um, in civil societies too. And um, and I'm curious, the people that are working on these technologies, and even the people that are working on technologies that could be one day adapt to that, do they? How do they feel about the potential that there could be artificial intelligence that is making decisions? Um, and capable of killing human beings um, without a human intervening. Right. That's one of the biggest concerns and debates that's arising. And mo- I would say most of the people are very, very concerned and very against that. Um, um, people like Yashua Bengio, for example, and, and Demis Asabis at, at DeepMind um, have actually signed petitions, you know, promising to never, ever work on uh, autonomous weapons. Um, uh, Stuart Russell at UC Berkeley actually made a movie called Slaughterbots that you can go on YouTube and see, and it's really quite terrifying. Uh, no, but there are a number yeah. of <laughs> yeah, there are a number of of issues there. Um, one is will militaries develop those weapons, and if that happens, then there there might be concerns that now you've got robots fighting against robots, and maybe the cost of going to war you know, gets even lower, right? Because now we don't have to send 18-year-old kids to war. We can just send robots. So maybe we become too quick to go to war. So it could actually impact um, national policy in that way. Um, what's even more scary, though, is if if these kinds of systems are developed, these autonomous killer uh, drones, for example, and they become available beyond militaries, and they're the kind of things that, you know, shady arms dealers are selling, the way they sell machine guns and stuff, so that anyone can get these, and, and you could have swarms of them, you know, that, that can do assassinations and so forth. Um, that's really terrifying, and people like Stuart Russell believe that at that level it becomes a weapon of mass dest- destruction, and that's, that's what his uh, Slaughterbots video is, is focused on. So that's the real concern, and that's um, why many people have called for a ban on, on weapons of this type in the same way that that there's a ban on chemical weapons, although, of course, chemical weapons were, in fact, used in in Syria, so it's never going to be perfect. Uh, But there is another side to that argument, which says, you know, if you have a robot that can actually take over some of these roles, uh, we should not assume that because there's no human in the the loop that it's going to be worse. I mean, that's really giving a lot of credit to humans, isn't it, in terms of their judgment, (laughs) their their morality. yeah. And we know that that's not the case, right? So, I mean, I mean, just think of policing applications. I mean, we had a lot of high-profile situations in the United States where there may have been racism involved and so forth in police shootings. A robot's not going to do that, right? Um, in theory, if the robot is properly designed, it's not going to be racist. And furthermore, even more important than that is that the robot can afford – 
to shoot second, right? I mean, a robot's not particularly concerned about taking a bullet, so it can wait. I mean, so it could save a lot of lives in many applications if you actually introduce these weapons. So I do think that there are two sides to that discussion and that we shouldn't be too emotional um, about this idea that a machine is making a decision and, and we really want a person who might be a 19-year-old a kid you know, sitting in front of a computer screen flying a drone in, in the Middle East. We want that person to make that decision. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's not so clear-cut as that. So I think that um, it, it's something that really deserves some, some careful thought and discussion. My own view, though, is that these kinds of military autonomous weapons are probably pretty much inevitable. And the reason is, at least in, in the military sphere, it's going to just bring an enormous advantage, right? I mean, you, if one side goes autonomous, and the Russians are certainly working on this, then the other side can't afford not to do that because they're going to be dramatically slower, right? I mean, I, I think you can get kind of a preview of that by looking at what's happening in Wall Street, right, where you've got these predatory competing algorithms trading on Wall Street, and they're trading stocks in you know, minuscule fractions of a second, and, and that obviously gives, you know, the different players advantages, right? And the same kind of thing is going to happen in the military sphere with real autonomous robots. So it's probably inevitable that those uh, so when it, but get developed. Isn't, isn't one of the questions that when, you know, it's to build a nuclear bomb, um, for example, uh, you would need tens of millions of dollars you would need hundred you need tens of thousands of people you would need you know i mean it, it was 130,000 people that worked on the manhattan project um it was it cost 22 million dollars um no i think it was 22 billion sorry in today's money um it it took years it was over, it took place over 30 different countries and three different sites it was like all these different things that were going on and um and what yet with 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 technology someone can build you know a, a new chip that can be used to for one thing and it can be applied that chip and that technology can be applied to something else so for example you know when uh cell chips were were invented for for cell for cell phones you know they're they're now in light sockets and they're in cars and they're doing all these things that they were that and they apply new experiences and new technologies to older technologies so isn't is one of the worries and uh, that that you could have people that are building ai for one thing and then someone who has nefarious purposes in mind um, a terrorist for example could then take that and point it for something bad, bad, like it's you talk about these people that are signing all these, um, they're signing paperwork saying, oh, that they won't work on any anything that could be used for weapons of mass destruction. But isn't the ability that that someone would be able to just point it in another direction? Yeah, I think that's a real concern. I mean, the, the two issues you raised there. That first of all, the barriers to entry with these technologies are much lower. So, as you said, with nuclear weapons, you pretty much have got to be a nation state in order to develop a nuclear weapon. Um, it's a much lower barrier to entry for technologies of this type. I mean, anyone can work on this stuff in a basement. And there is much more crossover between the commercial sphere and, and the military-type sphere with these technologies than we've seen previously. So you can, in fact, buy a drone on Amazon and, and weaponize that, right, if you do some custom work on it. And maybe someone could buy a 1,000 of those and figure out a way to install autonomous software 
and, and use those for a weapon. That, that's a real conceivable problem. And so you could have people in a basement doing this. Um, and by the way, this extends not just to AI and, and computer stuff, but also into biotech, right? That's another area where you have the same problem. I mean, you know, things like uh, the equipment used to do genetic engineering is also becoming really cheap. So this is a really scary scenario for the future where you can have very small actors, basically, you know, much with far less resources than, than previously that could conceivably create weapons that are just enormously powerful and disruptive. So this, this is one of the challenges we're going to face in the future. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. It's so interesting to think that technologies are often designed to try to make our lives better. And at first they do, but then they become more disruptive than they were in the first place. This often happens at work, but it doesn't have to. Imagine a workplace with no distractions or disruptions. Imagine no endless searching to find the latest version of a document. Imagine no longer constantly switching between apps. Now imagine a place where everything just flows. A Dropbox, this is what they're doing. They're building a home for all your team's work and the conversations around it with a suite of tools that maximize inspiration and minimize distraction. Because when teams are in flow, everything just clicks. You can learn more about this by visiting dropbox.com forward slash flow. That's F-L-O-W. Once again, visit dropbox.com forward slash flow. Dropbox keeps teams flowing. When you um, when you think about all of the scenarios um, of the future with AI and autonomous weapons and job loss and um, you know it's they all kind of seem a little daunting and overwhelming. Um, as someone who has spent so much time thinking about this stuff and talking to these experts, is it going? Are you as are you as worried as I am, or am I just kind of looking at the the dark side of it a little bit too much? Well. <clears throat> Usually, I'm characterized as a as a pessimist because, you know, the book I wrote in 2015, Rise of the Robots. I mean, the subtitle of that book was "The Threat of a Jobless Future," right? And it talks about the potential for massive job market dis- uh, disruption, which I believe could happen. But what I always say is that, in the short and immediate term, I am a bit pessimistic. I think this is going to be a disruption that's very hard for us to adapt to. But in the longer run, I'm an optimist. I think that. If we can figure out how to adapt to this and and make sure that we're leveraging this technology on behalf of everyone, not just on part of a few people, and and also address some of the security issues, then I think it's it's extraordinarily positive. But I mean, this is the point that we're at. This is what progress is going to look like in the future. If we're going to say no, we don't want this this technology. We want to stop artificial intelligence. Then that's essentially saying we're going to shut down progress. We're saying to our children and our grandchildren you're not going to have the same kind of progress that we've had um, in the past because we're not going to allow that to happen. I think that would be a huge mistake. Um, so I, you know, I do think that these technologies have enormous potential to be helpful to humanity, but it is going to be a real challenge to figure out how we adapt to the implications of this. And one thing that concerns me is that people just sort of turn a blind eye to that and they just say, well, everything will work out. And I think that Everything won't just work out. I think that we will need actual policies to address these issues, and that's a big part of the reason that I go around talking about it a lot and, and also write about it. Well, but you so you you mentioned before inequality, and 
it seems to me, you know, that they, they, there are AI experts and researchers and engineers that I've spoken to that say it's going to be easier to replace your lawyer than it will be to replace your garbage man. And, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, these robots that can move their arms and their legs and, um, and can walk are very, very difficult to make. Robots that look like people and act like people are difficult. However, AI that can, you know, proofread a document or can help, you know, create a document or whatever it is or, or do accounting or things like that are going to be a lot easier to create because there's a set of guidelines they stay and they don't have to walk through a street and worry about bumping over a sidewalk or something. Um, so is the the immediate job loss, isn't it going to affect the the more white-collar jobs before it affects the blue-collar jobs? I, I think it will uh, impact both, but definitely you're, you're right. It could, it could be even more dramatic on routine white-collar jobs because they only require software, right? Um, they don't require any machine that can actually manipulate the environment. Um, so that's true. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, that isn't necessarily the kind of inequality we're focused on here. I mean, the other thing that's happening is that, and you can see this in countries throughout the world, is that capital is capturing more income relative to labor. So um, labor across the board is kind of being devalued, and capital is capturing more and more of that value. And, of course, capital is very highly concentrated in terms of its ownership. So that's the real inequality, as you know, is at the top. It's not between the accountant and the the guy collecting the garbage. It's between, you know, Bill Gates and, 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 and the rest of us, right? Um, and so this will definitely increase inequality in terms of um, making capital enter, uh, ownership more, um, you know, more valuable. Um, but, I, you know, it's going to impact jobs across the board. We really kind of predict how you know, what it's really going to look like. There definitely will be a lot of blue-collar jobs that will be impacted. I know of startups that are working on uh, machines or robots to make hamburgers, to make pizza. Um, you see the Amazon Go stores, right, that are being tested that can potentially put cashiers out of uh, jobs. And cashiers are actually, I think, the most common uh, occupation in the United States. So it's going to be really across the board, quite massive, um, both white-collar and blue-collar occupations and, uh, that could be impacted. And it's and, and do you think that, you know, when we talk about um, we talk about driverless cars, for example, um, we have a lot of companies that are working on them, um, and the theory is that, you know, the technology comes along and, um, and we start to see driverless cars enter the world, and slowly but surely they start to take over jobs. My feeling has always been that it will happen at a very rapid pace when it actually finally happens. It's not like, you know, the technology to to make a, a driverless truck that could drive across the country and replace a trucker, um, it's not like we create one version of it um, and we only use it on a few trucks. If it works, it's going to work for everything, right? And it will work in a way that will make tens of millions of jobs vanish in a very short period of time. Right. I would tend to agree with that. I think, I, I, again, my sense is that it's a bit further out than a lot of the hype suggests because it is a very difficult problem. But certainly trucks over long distances are probably easier than, than, than cars. Um, I think that there are good reasons to believe that when the technology finally arrives and when it is proven to be safer than having a human driver there, there's going to be a tremendous incentive 
to use it especially in commercial areas, right? If you're a company that hires people to drive, then because of the liability concerns as well as the efficiency concerns, you've got an enormous uh, incentive to get rid of that driver. So it actually happens there before it happens with, you know, vehicles owned by individual people. Um, so it could happen quite rapidly, even if it if it is a bit further out um, than what we project. Um, but there are other areas that I anticipate might happen even sooner. I mean, you look inside of an Amazon warehouse, for example. Right now, you've got lots of people there, and they've actually been hiring um, quite robustly for that area, right? So that's actually one of the growth sectors of the economy, hiring people to work in Amazon warehouses. But there are also a lot of robots there, and the robots do things like they'll bring a shelf to a worker, and then the worker has to reach in there and grab the item and put it in the box because the robot can't do that yet. But that's going to change for sure in the next maybe five years or so. The robots are going to get a lot more dexterous. And I think those kinds of environments that are very controlled, where there's enormous amounts of data, uh, could progress much more rapidly than, for example, self-driving cars, where it's very unpredictable. You're out in the real world, and it's got to be absolutely perfect. I mean, if you can build an Amazon uh, robot in a warehouse that can do the job half the time in a predictable way, then that's enormously powerful um, in that environment, whereas, you know, with the self-driving car, you need a much higher level of perfection. So I think you could see the revolution even faster in a lot of other environments like, like those warehouses. Um, when you, uh, you, one of the people you spoke to is someone that I have um, spoken to before for your book, uh, Nick Bostrom, who's kind of been the person out there, you know, screaming in a in a more um, sane way than Elon Musk has about the potential downfalls of robots and AI and how they could destroy society and so on. And he recently put out a paper, which I thought was so fascinating, about how technologies, almost all technologies have a good side and a bad side. Um, and we're seeing that, of course, with social media these days with Facebook and so on. But um, but he talks about technologies in terms of an urn um, and that each time you pull a technology out of a, out of the urn, it's like a ball and some of them are white and some of them are gray. Um, and, and the gray ones, of course, are used negatively. But we've never, he says, pulled out a black one yet. Um, a black one that could essentially destroy civilization or most of it. Um, and his theory, of course, is that that we haven't done that simply by luck. Uh, that we have been lucky that you know the 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 Cold War, for example, we didn't bomb each other because the speed with which it took uh, for Russia to send a nuke over here would have been a few minutes. In, and given us enough time to send one over there, and before you know it, uh, there's no more Russia, there's no more America, and maybe everyone else in between. And so it became, it actually had the adverse respect, uh, um, effect where it kind of calmed things. It created the stalemate where we knew we couldn't win and they knew they couldn't win, so it didn't happen. But that as we start to look at AI, um, and as it does start to become more intelligent, uh, and the barrier to entry does become easier, and one of the things that Bostrom says is, of course, that that you know the same thing we talked about earlier, where anyone may be able to create AI and tell it what to do in the in the future. Um, that we will one day maybe pull out one of these black balls from the urn, and and that could be it. Do you think that Bostrom is right to say this, um, or is he kind of 
looking at it from this pessimistic point of view that we're eventually just going to screw this whole thing up? Well, I definitely think he's looking at it from a pessimistic perspective, but I think what he says is is fundamentally possible. It could happen. Um, I mean, his focus in terms of artificial intelligence is on, again, on building AGI, right, an artificial general intelligence, something that would be at the level of a human being in terms of its ability to think and conceive ideas. And the assumption on the part of almost everyone that thinks about this is that once you reach that stage, almost instantly it becomes smarter than any human being. So now we've got a super intelligence. We've got something that that might, you know, the difference between this entity and us might be the same as the difference between us and an insect. You know, it, so it might be just vastly beyond us. And at that point, how do we control it? I mean, there are a number of issues with that. Um, the other thing that comes up is that there is a competition going on to, to you know, advanced AI. Uh, it is entirely possible that whoever gets there first would have essentially, uh, you know, an uncatchable advantage, right? Because because it would build on itself. It would accelerate um, based on what has come before. So essentially, whoever gets it is uncatchable. Um, so they've got this dramatic advantage. So you don't see what you saw with nuclear weapons where the two sides kind of offset each other and there was this mutual disruption. I mean, most you might, you might have a situation where one side, if they can control this, this super intelligent AI, have got this overwhelming advantage. So that's kind of scary as well. Uh, so there are real issues there. Um, I personally, again, I think that's pretty far in the future. I would say that by the time we get to the point where that's a real concern, we're going to learn a lot that we don't know yet. Um, so we may be in a bit of better position to control it. But I'm definitely in favor of investigating these issues. There are a number of think tanks that have been set up. Uh, Nick Bostrom's Future of Humanity Institute is one of them. Uh, Elon Musk has funded OpenAI, which is also working on this issue. Right? How do you build an intelligent machine that is controllable in a sense that, that will do what we want it to do and won't do things that, that harm us? Um, so I think these are definitely um, good ideas and good things that, that it's great that people are working on it and that private individuals are funding this. I just don't think that, I don't think we want Donald Trump tweeting about the implications of superintelligence. You know, we don't, we don't <laughs> want to push this into the government sector just yet and make it into a big issue because there are a lot of other more immediate things on our plate. And, and I don't think that, um, you know, those kind of people are yet in a position to understand these issues well enough. So I think it's, it's, it's a good allocation of resources right now where we've got these private think tanks working on this. But shouldn't but but isn't the problem with the inequality the fact that someone like Donald Trump isn't thinking about AI and supercomputing and and that they are that that they're completely oblivious to the fact that there are technologies being created today that will disrupt tens of millions of jobs in the next few years? Well, yeah, but again, I'm I'm separating two issues here. I think that Got it. The, the economic issue, the potential for jobs to disappear, um, the security issue, the fact that people can hack into these systems, the fact that in the near term we might have autonomous weapons, these are all important issues that we should absolutely be thinking about right now, for sure. But you, you were talking about Nick Bostrom and his focus on yep. machines that are really going to take over. That's, that's the thing I'm saying is, is further out. Um, so to, to just jump to that question that I just asked, are, are there people in government – 
that you have spoken to or that you know of or politicians that are thinking about this? Because I haven't really come across any. There are. Uh, I actually went, um, was it last year or the year before, to Capitol Hill and talked to a group of uh, uh, representatives from the House of Representatives, um, all Democrats. Uh, but the guy leading that was uh, Seth Moulton, who was a mm-hmm. representative from Salem, Massachusetts. He's really interested in that. He's been, his name's been bantered about as a possible presidential, one, one of the hundred people are going to run in, in 2020, I guess. Uh, so there are definitely politicians in the United States that are interested in this. Um, in Europe, I've met with a lot of the technocrats over there in countries like uh, the Netherlands and Austria. I met with, with some of the people in their various ministries over there. They're also concerned about this. Um, so people are thinking about it. Um, it hasn't really... I think entered the public sphere yet and become really a major, um, you know, part of the debate. But I think that could could well change. I think that one thing that will happen over the next few years is that robots are going to become a lot more visible. Right? People will see them, um, and the impact on work and everything will become a lot more obvious. And I think at that point, it's definitely going to become much more of an issue for public debate. Um, okay, so a la- last couple of questions for you um, before we let you go. What was some? What was one of the most, or a couple of the most interesting things you discovered in the reporting for this book? Things that you heard of uh, that you found fascinating? Well, the main thing that fascin- fascinated me was the was the, really the wide range of answers to the questions. And, and again, the the issue that I find most fascinating is this path to human level AI and and what people really think about when we'll get there and how we'll get there and, and the various um, techniques that we can employ to get there, which technology is really going to prove the most promising. Is it going to be the, the neural networks that are popular now or is it going to be something else entirely or some combination of those? Um, one of the most fascinating guys that I talked to was David Ferrucci, who was the IBM uh, Watson team leader. He's the guy that, that basically built uh, IBM Watson. and. He's taking a very different approach from a lot of other people. He believes that he can build a thinking machine um, using tools that basically exist already and, and giving strong emphasis to understanding language. Um, and he's actually started a new company called Elemental Cognition, which is focused on doing that. And he's very ambitious, thinking that this is not actually something that lies far in the future, that's something that could really be conceivable within a relatively short time frame. So that was a really fascinating discussion. Um, Hmm. I also enjoyed talking to Ray Kurzweil, who's a guy I think that a lot of people have heard about. He he actually, I think, believes that he could well live forever. He really believes that. Um, So he's got kind of a lot of very edgy, you might say even kooky ideas. But he now works at Google, working on, um, he directs an artificial intelligence team there. And one thing that really came across from our conversation is that he's really grounded in terms of this technology. I mean, you kind of perceive him as this, as this kind of big picture guy talking about all this futuristic stuff, but he's got a really deep understanding of, of what he's working on and, and also is very optimistic that he's going to build something within a decade or so. So it's really a fascinating series of, of discussions with completely different perspectives from, from very prominent, very, very smart people. Okay, so if you had to pick 
Um, I'm going to ask you to pick two different um, things here. Uh, the the technology that you're most excited about in the future from uh, AI um, and the technology that you're most terrified of in the future from AI, what are those two technologies? Well, the, the, the most exciting technology is the application of the innovations we're seeing in, in AI, meaning deep learning and, and other techniques to science and to medicine. Um, this, I think, could really be revolutionary in terms of discovering new drugs, um, in terms of maybe discovering new approaches to energy, the things that could really help us address issues like climate change. I mean, I personally believe that, that in order to address climate change, we need a lot of scientific breakthroughs, right? We need, we need better batteries and new forms of, of energy production and so forth. Um, and I think that AI applied to these areas could become the most important tool that we have in our toolbox in order to really make this happen. I mean, if you think about it, Everything that we've created in our world, in our civilization, results from our intellect, right? Our ability to learn and to create. And what we're doing with AI is building an enhanced version of that, something that will, for the first time, go beyond human intellect and allow us to hopefully invent things at a much faster rate. Uh, the scariest thing is quite possibly the application of this in, in weapons. You know, if that really gets out of control, if we see the advent of uh, autonomous weapons um, that are accessible to not just countries but to smaller players, and those become widely used, it will be very, very difficult to maintain order and defend against that. And I think that that's quite terrifying. And and sort of a close second to that would be the economic impact and the impact on inequality. That's the you know the the thing that I really focused on. And I think that if we don't succeed in adapting to that and figuring out solution, something like, for example, a universal basic income at some point, that, that is really just going to tear our society apart and, and really create a lot of chaos. I don't disagree with you in the slightest about that last one. Um, I, I, I wonder if we'll, uh, we'll tear ourselves apart because of inequality before we even get to the point that we, uh, that we have robots doing it for us. Um, okay, so, so very last question for you. Um, I was once at a dinner with a group of, uh, of engineers and AI folks and philosophers and so on, and, and I said to them, do you think that we are the only life in the universe? And the response was, was uh, pretty much across the board was the same, that, that even if, if we were or we were not, let's pretend for argument's sake that, that, we, that we are not, that there was other life in the universe. And if we ever wanted to reach that other life or if they wanted to reach us, that, that the only way we would be able to do that, to travel those distances, um, would be to create general artificial intelligence that would be able to figure out ways to travel that far throughout the universe. And if we were to do that, that that general artificial intelligence would grow so intelligent beyond our capacity to understand it so quickly that it would inevitably be the thing that would destroy us and therefore that's why uh, civilizations that may be out there will never meet civilizations that are here. Do you think that that's accurate that we you know once we create um, some sort of general artificial intelligence that it would immediately become smarter than humans? at a pace that we wouldn't be able to understand and that would eventually lead to our demise? 
I think that's entirely possible. I mean, that's, that's certainly the theory behind superintelligence, that once you build a true intelligent machine that, that is at the level of a human being, then rapidly it's naturally going to become much faster uh, or much smarter. Um, and the question is, then what happens? And some people will say, okay, ultimately it's going to replace us uh, and just simply push us aside that, that machine intelligence is the next stage in evolution, right? That, that biological intelligence is only, you know, the, the bootstrap, right, for, for the real thing, which is going to be me, machine intelligence. But other people like Ray Kurzweil believe that we will merge with that intelligence, that we will maintain our existence, that we will leverage those machines to make our own intellect smarter. And actually, there are people working on things like brain implants, right, that actually will... Um, Brian Johnson, one of the people I interviewed for the book, is, is working on uh, Colonel and a company to do that. So that's sort of the more optimistic vision. But definitely, um, I mean, it's, it's a completely different future from any, anything that we've imagined in the past. Uh, and that's entirely possible. Fun and terrifying conversation. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, your new book is Architects of Intelligence, The Truth About AI from the People Building It. It's a fascinating read. It's a little terrifying. It's also very exciting. Um, and uh, Martin Ford, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to my guest today, Martin Ford. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. If you're not an artificial intelligent robot, you can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you are an artificial intelligent robot, please leave a great review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Dropbox. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. We have a very special episode next week, so make sure you tune back in and give Inside the Hive a good listen. Have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.